0: Hello, I'm Alex Rockkeen. I'm a barrister at Third and Essex Chambers, specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm delighted to be joined in, actually quite a hot shed uh, this morning by Baroness Elora Findlay. Um, as people have watched any of these before know, I don't really like introducing the person I'm speaking to because it's so much more interesting to hear the person speak for themselves rather than me trying to put words in, in, in their mouth. So Elora, over to you, please Introdu- introduce yourself.
1: I thank you very much, Alex. And thank you for inviting me. I'm Elora Finlay. I'm a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. So my title is Baroness Finley of Landoff. And I had the pleasure and the excitement of chairing the National Mental Capacity Forum for six years in the end. I was appointed for three, but it kept on being extended until it could be extended no more.
0: Well, I really want to hear more about the, the National Mental Capacity Forum in a second, because and the work you did during in, at all stages, but particularly during the pandemic. I, I actually have really just got to cheesily say thank you. Without, without you, life for many people would have been very difficult and very different. But j- just before we get to that, just as it were, how, how did you get to the point of being appointed the chair?
1: Well... I was already in the House of Lords when the Mental Capacity Act was going through Parliament and because of my background in medicine and I'm in palliative medicine, I'd obviously come across a lot of patients with impaired capacity at some level or another, either permanently or transiently. All the most difficult actually was fluctuating capacity uh, because it was difficult to establish and know what was their true baseline, really. And as the discussions on the Mental Capacity Act uh, or bill were going through, I was involved in supporting some amendments and um, got very involved in trying to bring the clinical perspective to that legislation. Then There was an inquiry that the House of Lords ran, a post legislative scrutiny. And in all honesty, I was a bit disappointed I couldn't get on that committee. But it all turned out for the best because they recommended that basically something had to be done to get the Mental Capacity Act rolled out better. And at the time, um, there was an excellent civil servant who was really running the mental capacity act stuff in the department of health and uh, there was a decision to advertise for a post to to run it it was a pretty open-ended advert actually um without any particular job description of course no budget no secretary of support no office uh and uh a phenomenal salary of 4,000 pounds a year. Uh, Great, I thought I can do this. So um, I applied and I applied because I was aware that the Mental Capacity Act wasn't properly rolled out. I had also sat in on training sessions that had been run on it, which were often run um, by people with a legal background rather than a clinical background. And I would see people go into these sessions and come out terrified. Oh, Mm -hmm. the law's changed. And what can we do and what can't we do? And I think uh, the other thing that obviously was a huge influence is in my extended family. Uh, We have, there are two children, they're siblings with very severely impaired uh, intellectual development, uh, very profound learning difficulties. And uh, so I've seen the struggle that the parents have had to get everything for these children. I've seen the difficulties. I've seen it from the clinical end of people with dementia, people with malignancies, people with head injury, uh, people with all kinds of things that have affected their brain pathology. And then I've also seen it in the domestic setting of just how difficult it is to fight for your kids if they have a learning profound learning difficulties and I felt here was an opportunity to do something and make a difference so I applied
0: and you were appointed and one of the things I remember from, from quite early on you were legitimately vocal about the fact that you 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 were effectively being asked was it two days a year they were budgeting for or two days a month it was a very small period of time compared
1: to the amount of time you were you were banging the drum for the act well it it was but I mean you you know you don't do these things for your timetable or for the money you do them because you actually want to do it I had a patient once who said to me there's no pockets in shrouds and I've always stuck with that And actually your legacy is what you do with your life and with your working day, what you leave and how how you affect society. Um, And I felt that here was an opportunity to really broaden understanding about mental capacity issues altogether. And to help people take a much more positive attitude towards those with impaired capacity, building on all the bits that work rather than focusing on the bits that don't work. So building on people's strengths. Um, And I'll give a very simple example really, but as someone um, again in our extended family who has a degree now of, um, I think it has degree of dementia, but is the most phenomenal musician. Sit her in front of a piano, She's absolutely amazing. But ask her to sort out some of the other things in life. It gets a bit repetitive and complex. Um, and, you know, people have huge ability. I always remember going around, um, I went visiting a care home with a lot of people with quite severe dementia. In. And there was somebody there sitting playing the piano. And uh, he, I sat and spoke to him and he was playing brilliantly and he gave me this great story about how he came in to play for the residents every day and so on. And it was all completely fabricated, apparently, um, and bore no resemblance to reality, but he had this amazing skill and he could still bring great pleasure to everybody around because he was able to use his skill and fair dues to the home. The piano was in tune.
0: Oh, good. That's quite something. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I thought he might have been going to the point where he was saying the piano was was out of tune and he was doing his best with it. But no, that's that's No, no, no. I, I mean,
1: you know, fair dues, they realise what they'd got. They'd basically got free concerts for all the residents every day. Brilliant. So I just, I mean,
0: obviously your tenure was marked by, as it were, the before times and then the pandemic. If it's yeah. possible even to remember the before times. I'd just be yeah. sort of interested in your sense of the things you felt you were grappling with most with the Mental Capacity Act and people's understanding of the Mental Capacity Act and the different things that you were you were doing. So, right. sort of, And then we'll come to I, the pandemic.
1: I, I, think, I think my basic principle over the Mental Capacity Act was keep it simple because people can remember something that's simple. And if it's simple, and it makes their lives easier, they'll use it. If it's complicated, and it makes their life more difficult, they'll kind of mentally block it out. So, you know, thanks to and if I can mention people, Lorraine Curry, the most amazing woman and Shropshire, the hat, five fingers, you know, the five principles, the Mental Capacity Act. Yeah. Brilliant. And actually, by doing that in lots of settings, lots of times, I I found that, you know, I went from people not knowing what the five principles were, to generally at meetings within a couple of years, that message had got through. And um, that, that actually is a great start for people. And realizing that making best interest decisions is in the interests of the person, not you, not those who are putting pressure on you, not your service. So, so my that was my kind of first aim, and the and my goal was to be as inclusive as possible.
0: Yeah.
1: And to make, make it fun. And then that's where the Include Choir were wonderful. Um, and I'm now a patron of them, which is great. So the Include Choir, which has also just had a national award, thank goodness, um, actually made learning about the, nation- about the Mental Capacity Act fun. And that meant everybody could join in. Yes. And if it's fun, it gets embedded in your memory better. Um, and if it's not fun, your natural response is to block it out and push it away. And then uh, to try to create a network. So I started off having conferences. The The problem with conferences is a limited number of people come. Yep. The very first conference that I held was I wanted to get the voice of the person on the receiving end. So not the professionals we do to you, but the group we are being done to um the voice of the person and uh, that was really interesting because um it made me aware of there being even more problems than i had been aware of initially yeah um and Some people were very angry, very bitter about years of not being listened to, their relatives not being listened to, patronising attitudes had come across. So those were all things that we had to tackle. And then by networking, uh, we were able to look at good practice. So the initial conferences were about good practice. And that was all going on well. And I had planned to have a big conference in the north, Uh, in Manchester and Andy Burnham very generously had given us for free because I had no budget to do it with, had given us um, rooms and uh, was really going to fund the conference for us out of his Manchester budget. And then the pandemic came along. And of course, everybody was isolated and we had to manage the pandemic. So, All of a sudden, we have all these people in care homes who are effectively locked in, effectively imprisoned in their care home. We have young people in long-term residential accommodation of all different sorts, suddenly locked in. Uh, In my own extended family, the dance class that was really huge for Bethan stopped. That was her big activity. She loved it. Um, Painting classes, stopped. Uh, Just terrible. Um, And then the next problem, of course, was how professionals could even assess capacity. And um, trying to do it through a window, on an iPad, or whatever, really difficult. And often the staff were under pressure. So uh, I hit on um, the idea of running fast track webinars. And I thought we'd run one or two. And they were so well subscribed. Now, we had I think over 500 signing up for them. Of course, on the day, not everybody came. But The great thing was that we consistently had huge Mm. numbers. So we were clearly meeting a need. And then um, thanks to to Wayne and to you, Alex, we were developing uh, a little pre-registration, pre-webinar questionnaire. And that gave us lots of information about what was of concern to people. And we saw a shift over the pandemic, a slight shift in what the top concerns were. Um, But we were able to share good practice so people could be empowered to find imaginative ways uh, to do things rather than saying, oh, we can't do it, so we don't do it. Um, So particularly around assessing capacity, uh, better ways to to manage it. Um, And as we emerge from the pandemic, I think one of the things that's been important has been actually to then argue for the restrictions to be lifted. Yeah. Because I think some of them have been inappropriately, as time went on, became inappropriately risk-averse. Uh, easy with hindsight, but it's really important to have human contact. I think we should have been allowing more human contact. When people were dying in care homes, their relatives shouldn't have had to be looking, you know, seeing them through a window. We should have just given them PPE, let them go in, sit there, because it was about a balancing of risks. And we got excessively risk averse in health and social care, uh, which I think at sometimes was disproportionate because some of these people in care homes were dying anyway. So if their family had been sitting with them, their death would have been gentler perhaps, yeah. but the family would have known that they'd been there. They'd been able to say their goodbyes. Um, and I had to battle quite hard for some individual cases. One I came across, um, the mother classically been at home, had a fall, had a fracture. As they, she was put in the ambulance, the daughter knew that she would possibly not see her again uh but mum left quite compass mentis you know uh, but then deteriorated uh, they could only communicate via an ipad when eventually with a lot of arguing the family were allowed in the woman by then had deteriorated so much that she didn't recognize her own children even though they were then allowed to sit with her when she was dying I think some some services have and are remaining inappropriately risk averse I think it's yes I mean I
0: I know that I mean we're we're, we're talking in June 2022 which is and we, we're obviously not out of the woods but we're, we're definitely in a different place to where we were at different stages and uh, it's interesting with the joint I mean the Joint Committee on Human Rights are here have been hearing evidence really quite recently about visiting restrictions and it's it's there are definitely areas where people are still defaulting to risk averse and it's it's going to be a it's going to be a long haul yeah. and people are just going to have to keep banging the drum in terms of as you say getting that getting that balance right
1: yeah I, I, and the other thing that we saw of course was a, a lack of understanding about best interest decision making yeah a lack of understanding about advanced decisions to refuse treatment and the attempts to put blanket DNA CPRs in and so on, people were, were well-meaning. They weren't doing it because they wanted all these old people to die. That wasn't the motive behind it. It was just a lack of understanding, a knee-jerk reaction. And I think something of a panic after we saw all these terrible things happening in Italy yeah.
0: um,
1: and services totally overwhelmed, But now we've got different variants. We've got populations who are vaccinated to a certain extent. If they're not, that's been their choice. It's been offered to everybody. And I think that actually we, oddly enough, I think the pendulum needs to swing the other way. We need to involve families much more in caring for people when they're an inpatient so that they're better prepared for caring for them when they get home. So they know what to do. So they've learned how to help them get up from a chair, how to help them get out of bed because very simple things like sitting to standing or sitting on the side of the bed and then standing helping somebody move effectively there are techniques to that Mm -hmm. but if the family aren't taught it what happens the person goes home and then day two they're on the floor again
0: yeah (laughs) it's a very good point i mean the one last thing i we're we're sort of beginning to run out of time sadly because I, i there were so many things i'd like to ask you but you've just reminded me of in particular just about vaccination i remember very very vividly when we were working up the webinar about vaccination and the discussion we were having and discussion almost online as well about, well, all you do is you apply the same thought process as you would do to thinking about flu vaccination. And the sort of almost, amongst some people, almost blank looks of, well, I don't really think about capacity and best interest in flu vaccination. You're, in a way it's kind of, well, we can, one can either get very cross Or you can say, well, this is a learning opportunity to go, if you can get this right, then this is the way in which you can think about, you know, you now understand what capacity is, and you now understand about best interests. And that, to me, at least will always live with me as a kind of trying to hold on to any silver linings. That was one bit where you could go, at least we've had the chance to educate some people to think about that good, what should have been baseline, good clinical practice for for anybody.
1: I, th- I think that's right. I think actually there was an awful lot of learning that came out through, through those webinars that we did uh, because it helped, I think, or I hope, it helped people realise that those principles of the Mental Capacity Act should be applied to every encounter with every person, every day. And actually, you ha- might have a conversation socially And you think, oh, I think this person actually doesn't quite understand. And you you need to have that at the back of your mind. all, all, all over society, we have people with impaired capacity at different levels at different times. Um, and those principles stand us in good stead as to how we manage the situation. I was quite impressed actually at how the police have tried to learn about mental capacity um, in relation to drug, alcohol, head injury and so on. Um, and I've been worried sometimes that healthcare has lagged behind some of the other services. Um, But also that best interest decision-making has not been done well. And the consultation, particularly with the family, the relatives, is very inhibitory. The thought of bringing them into a room faced with a whole load of professionals, that's enough to make them feel disempowered not empowered to speak up and say what they think and also I still think people don't consult widely enough yeah you know friends and neighbours often know from conversations what somebody really wants Uh, but the relative breezing in from 300 miles away who hasn't seen them for two months may not know much about them anymore I, yes, I agree. I'd make a
0: very small plug at that point for the for the BMA RCP guidance, which was about clinically assisted nutrition and hydration. And at the back of that, the appendix, which it's got about decision making, and yeah. in particular, that aspect, please work out that the person the person who's going to give you the most valuable information isn't necessarily the person whose name appears top on some kind of family list. A- and also that idea that, as you say, it could be immensely intimidating for people in a meeting. And actually, sometimes it could be intimidating for the healthcare professional. So it's, you know, what's the best way of gathering the information? So, yeah. Yeah. But um, Elora, thank you so much for your time now. And I, I know this sounds cheesy, but just thank you so much for all the work you did jo- uh, as chair of the National Mental Capacity Forum, because the, the drums you banged and uh, the way you got the Include Choir to do the Battle Hymn of the Mental Capacity Act. That was a you know, a fantastic moment. And all that work, and I know, I know. Even though you're no longer the chair, you're not, you're not going to stop being bothered about it. So thank you. I yeah, just wanted I to take the have... to say thank you.
1: Well, I would like to thank you, Alex, because you have actually provided, if you like, a spine uh, running through everything, and the ribs come off, and the vertebrae, <laughs> the muscles get attached. It's all there, but you've provided this central legal spine and perspective, but also with a phenomenal amount of humanity. And that's what's made the work that you've done particularly special. So huge thank you to you. And I hope that people recognise just how much you have done, how much Lorraine in particular has done, sharing openly and Grace, a daughter sharing openly, and so many other so many other people who've shared their own experiences and brought the whole Mental Capacity Act to life in the way that they've done it. And it's been those stories that have allowed people to learn. So thank you. Well,
0: thank you so much. Thank you, Laura.